Yeah, so welcome to uh, our, you're, you're the second last guest uh, for this run of, uh, you know, this occupational therapy podcast, which you hung out with me a lot last year when I was going through a major identity crisis, trying to shed my goofy clownish persona and trying to move on with my life to not be Jingle Jared anymore. So Zach, why don't you give him the, the, the lowdown on, on what we're doing here? Yeah, Nick, basically, uh, this is a show about uh, Jared's second career, basically. He, you know, was the Jingle King for 10 years, and now he has a two-year non-competitive agreement. He's not allowed to make any jingles. So he's looking for a new career, and we've been interviewing a bunch of people at the top of their game all across all mediums, trying to see if maybe Jared can step into their shoes and see how they got to the top and maybe start his next career doing, you know, what you do, which is create and run television shows. As well as right. There you go. And, and, and Nick is an interesting guy because much like anybody who we've spoken to here, he's a multi-hyphenate. He comes, he's, it, it, it's strange to say this, but he's one of the few literate people in the world of television writing. So <laughs> why don't you sort of take us back to your career before this career and explain what you were doing? Because I always find it interesting. You know, people ask me, hey, how did you get into jingles? And there's, if I had a roadmap, I'd share it. But your story's as strange as anybody else's. So take us back to the beginning. Huh. Well, um, yeah, I got to kind of rush you through uh, like 35 years. So uh <laughs> For the, you know, for the first, pretty much the first half of my life, I was a visual artist. Um, I was a painter and, uh, multimedia drawing. Um, and, uh, you know, born in Southwest Louisiana, went to Louisiana State, uh, had an art scholarship there. And somewhere towards the end of college, um, uh, my interest had kind of drifted to uh, literature and philosophy, and uh, I had become disillusioned by the visual arts and what I saw as a kind of manufactured value. Um, <clears throat> because in a lot, most of the other arts, if not all, especially you know, uh, in capitalism, their degree of their, um, success is, and, and whether or not you get to do it again is largely measured on how many people connect with the work you've done. And by manufactured value, I just mean that as a visual artist, that was not a criteria. Um, and, and started to see this in other, uh, areas with, you know, is more or less the influence of postmodernism and this kind of hysterical relativism. But it was also super expensive to be a visual artist. And I was like really tired of being dead broke. And I realized that my visual art was often sort of bringing in some kind of narrative implication to what it was doing even mm -hmm. the more expressionistic things. Um, and that I'd always liked storytelling and always, it, it, I'd, I'd always found myself able to be very moved by a good story. And I think a lot of people are like that. Um, and the more literature classes I took, you know, it, it, it started to seem like a kind of viable thing. And one of the first things I thought was that 
storytelling was this sort of thing that if you became very good at it, you know, it, no matter how many people say that you suck at it, if a certain number of people think you're good at it, it could open the doors for all kinds of mediums if yeah. you you sort of had the the capability to explore those mediums. Like, uh, if you could learn how to do this, then you can, you're recession-proof because you can generate something out of nothing. Um, and it's yours, so you don't have to give it away. It, it can only get made well, under the conditions you specify. It's There's a premium on storytelling, especially right now. Every other part of the entertainment business is shut down, but someone like you can stockpile and and create stories. Yeah. And, you know, before we even get to, um, you know, the whole true detective of it all, you know, the thing that I found really fascinating when I first, you know, got to know you was, um, you know, the, the book Galveston and, and how that sort of was a pathway into uh, where you are now in Hollywood or, or uh, you know, I don't yeah. know if you consider yourself Hollywood, but, you know, you're in the yeah. system. You're, you're, you're definitely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, um, I'm no fan of the military entertainment complex, but. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely part of it because mm -hmm. you'd be stupid not to be if you could. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know, kind of moved into thinking I would go to law school after college and at some point be a writer, do it on the side or something. I was really sick of being super poor. Um, and I took an elective that was uh, like an independent study uh, novel writing course and the teacher offered me a lot of encouragement. So then I thought, well, maybe I'll, I took my LSATs and everything. So maybe I'll just wait a few years and try to write. But then I just bartended for a few years, went to grad school just to have three years where I didn't do anything but try to write. And I told myself if nothing came out of it, I wasn't going to stick around or be somebody, you know, who was like, I'm never going to give this up. Um, I'm going to get to the business of living. Um, but things, you know, uh, seem to go well and, um, pretty early and I kind of ended up just by default being in academia after grad school for about five years. And I published a collection of short stories nobody read, but, it, you know, uh, I still think it's a pretty good collection. Um, and I spent almost two years on a first novel that was going to be published by the same publisher, but I pulled it in galleys because it was not very good. Um, and then I just, you know, kind of wasn't sure where I uh, should go next or even maybe what I wanted to be doing. But uh, my wife at the time was pregnant and so I ended up writing Galveston inside of three months during uh, her third trimester. You know, so, but the, there was a year and a half, almost two years before that, writing a bad novel. And anyway, <laughs> uh, that got published and um, it got pretty good reviews. Um, 
Dennis Lehane gave it a really, really nice review in the Times. And I had already said to friends and my wife at the time, uh, you know, if this allows me to speak to anybody in Hollywood, mm-hmm. um, I'm going to L.A. And uh, we're going to be in film and TV business. And, you know, I think my buddy said, uh, that's a great idea. You know, I, I don't think any writers really ever thought to do that. Um, (laughs) it's, it's, it's funny because, you know, that's like really one of those passive things where I think a lot of authors wait for Hollywood to come calling, but it seems like in your mind, you knew that this was a step before the step, like, you know, in many ways, you know, by being a visual artist and also, somewhat of a you know a contrarian you also though understand the implicit value of what you know having unique stories can bring to the table there aren't many people that are uh, you know have the profile uh, you know of uh, a true author's background in Hollywood. You have a lot of people that know how to run a writer's room. You have a lot of people that know how to write Everybody Loves Raymond or whatever it is, like paint by numbers. But it seems like this allowed you a way in where you would sort of be yeah. singular like and left alone. Well, you know, I don't even know if it was that I'd be singular and left alone because I, I it, like it definitely was not coming from a more literary background uh, that the provided me actually anything but skepticism really um i mean and and i'll tell you like i've I've read several um scripts by very very good uh novelists and they 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 don't work in any way um but what i did was galveston got optioned i you know i think for like eight thousand dollars whatever but that allowed me to speak to the Hollywood literary agents who had sold the option. And, you know, I just asked them, um, well, look, what, what do I have to do to be uh, up for the job of writing the screenplay? And, you know, come to that. What do I have to do to get into the TV business and come to that? How do you, you know, what's, what's the showrunner path? Uh, yeah. You know, and they said, well, have you written scripts? And I said, no. And then they said, well, you know, you need to write scripts. And, and, and if you write a great spec script and a great pilot, um, that can get you meetings. And then when you, um, you know, but then when you have a meeting, it's, it's on you. Uh, that's, but, but you have to have those things. Mm-hmm. I said, okay. And, you know, I, I understand a bit and think they were taking me terribly seriously. Um, and then I wrote six. TV scripts in a little over four weeks. And that was, uh, I wrote a spec script for Justified. I wrote three episodes of an original show set in my hometown. And then two other pilots. One was a bull riding pilot and one was True Detective. Um, and, and so uh, I, I, I got a lot of meetings, flew out to LA twice and took a bunch of them. Got a staff writing job on the show The Killing, and oh, yeah. got a got a deal with HBO at the same time mm-hmm. to develop that full writer script, and um, so that was great. But when I got to town, I also felt like I, I you know, sort of what you were saying. I, I think two things actually helped me with what you were 
kind of uh, getting at, I think. One was that when I came out, uh, I, I felt like I had a lot of lost time to make up for. And so I kind of just decided to myself that I was treating this like fantasy camp. And I wasn't, you know, you don't go to fantasy camp and, and, and go for the bunt or something. <laughs> and, you know, I just figured, look, if, if I do this for two years, I just, you know, I, I will have made five times the money I would have made uh, being a professor and it'll be a neat little adventure, but I'm not staying at the casino, you know, when it's past time uh, or when I have to start playing with my own money, more or less. Um, and then the HBO development thing taught me that uh, I, I, I didn't want to develop. Um, and so the way to not develop would be to put together as much of the show as possible ahead of time. Um, and I'd always thought, uh, after I wrote True Detective, I was like, oh man, if, you know, like if there was anything that was going to grab actors, really, it, it would be this. And looking at the state of movies, I, uh, I thought it, it was, you know, it, it was going to become a self-evident fact that uh, good actors still wanted to act, and if mm -hmm. you could give if you could give them a platform that wasn't going to demand, you know, a two or three or four year contract, it was it was just a story, and they felt it was of enough quality that, that I thought you could get people like that. Anyway, yeah, and you immediately got big names into into this thing. Like, how soon into your process was McConaughey and Harrelson, you know, in this thing? And um, you know, I, I, I also your point that I just want to reinforce there is that everybody's stuck at home right now. I've officially run out of things to watch. How many times can I watch Chinatown, The Godfather? Or and I was actually thinking the other day you recommended Fleabag, but like I went and I rewatched season one of true detective again there is a lot of content there's not a lot of good content so like in order to at peak what i call the reconnaissance you know come back here he steps into probably i think the defining role of of the the rebuild period of what mcconaughey was doing yeah um well we were lucky to have him and honestly i had a feeling um i had i i had asked out of my uh, staffing job shortly after the second season started. And because again, it was that fantasy camp thing. It was just like, you know, just go for it or don't. Uh, and Alejandro Inaritu had wanted to do True Detective and had asked for a second script. And so that's when I wrote the second script. That was about a year earlier. And, you know, I love Inaritu. I'm just, I'm wow. super glad, super glad he didn't get it though. Uh, I would have, I'm sure, been sent home. Um, <laughs> and uh, so with those two scripts, um, got together with Carrie and uh, a producer who um, didn't remain with the project. Um, we just all had a bunch of drinks and I said, sure, let's go for it. Uh, you know, you'll direct it. I've got a lot of specific you know, visions for this thing, but we can do it. And 
Then the casting process, what was suggested a lot was those was younger guys who wouldn't be quite as lived in as uh, Matthew and Woody. And, you know, also they, everybody they tried to put forward for Cole was that sort of Hollywood type of what they believe the intellectual is. You know, someone, someone who essentially reads as frail, but highly mm-hmm. cerebral and, uh, you know, and I, I didn't really like that. And I, I knew I wanted somebody that had uh, what is considered uh, a, a more old school um, flavor of masculinity and, and, and that you could believe had a life behind him. You know, he, he didn't look like a boy with five o'clock shadow painted on or something. Um, and then I, I, I just happened to catch the Lincoln lawyer one night, I guess it was like in 2012, you know, mm-hmm. on the TV. And I was like, Oh yeah, this guy, this guy's a man. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I just kind of looked up what he'd been up to. And I saw that he like, he hadn't done a romantic comedy in two years and, and, and he hadn't been doing much, but he did Lincoln lawyer. And he was, he had just finished William Friedkin's version of Tracy Letts' Killer Joe, where he played Killer Joe. And I knew that mm-hmm. play. And I heard about Dallas Buyers Club, that that, that, yeah. that was on deck for him next. So, so I thought to myself, well, wait a minute, you know, if he's playing Killer Joe, Mm-hmm. And, and and Dallas Buyers Club, like 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 like, there's a possibility that he could go for this. I just I got a feeling, and if you just look at his choices, you know, there there's a real wild hair, like sort of running through them. Um, but the other producers uh, at the time could only see him as Hart, um, Woody's character. You know, they were like, oh, yeah, he's great for that. Well, if you really think about Matthew before Cole and before Killer Joe, I understand the, the, the perception they were coming from. You, you know, I just kind of Wow, it's making me rethink the whole thing. I mean, I can't even, now that I've seen it, I can't unsee it the way yeah, that I've seen it. Right. Yeah, well, right. Why, now, why, didn't, why didn't you try why? to maybe go with someone like Gary Busey in that role? <laughs> Well, I just, I don't know, because it's really a two-hander, and I don't know who could hold screen with Gary Busey. I mean, you know, he would would just kind of annihilate them with the force of his charisma and will. It's, you know. It's actually funny that he said that, because Busey was in Lethal Weapon, and you described, and I've I've never thought of this before, but the way that you described true detective blew my mind because it doesn't make any it only makes sense when you say it when i've said it to other people they go oh yeah that how did you explain it exactly your twist on Uh (laughs) uh-huh you you explain that that true detective was sort of like a gothic lethal weapon or something oh well no i was talking about the different seasons and i was sort of just like buttoning them all up in you know a mostly self-effacing way and I said, um, season one is a Southern Gothic lethal weapon with some, with some great performances mm-hmm. and um, some innovative structure to its storytelling. You know, that was it. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, anyway, we sent the script to Matthew ostensibly for the role of Hart, um, which I went along with because I thought. You know, if he reads this, 
he's going to want, and if he wants to do this at all, he's going to want to play Cole. And if he wants to play Cole, no matter what these producers preconceptions are, they have to go with it because now we have a movie star. And, and we had always, Woody Harrelson was always somebody we talked about. And we had been told from the jump that Woody just played a cop in Rampart. He doesn't play a cop. He doesn't want to do TV, leave us alone, mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when we talked to Matthew the first time, Matthew was like, you know, I don't know if you guys, uh, what, who you guys are thinking of for, for, uh, Hart, but, you know, I, uh, I, I was just wondering what you thought about Woody Harrelson. And we were all like, uh, yeah, that, that'd be great. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think you could help with that? And so then I, you know, then I think a lot of it had to do with Matthew telling Woody, come on, let's, let's do this. The scope of uh, also time and in all three se- in all I guess first and third season really with like how you play with time a lot and stuff like that is that something that you knew was like going to be a device when you were putting this thing together because it it does wash over you like like a great essay or a great book seeing you know knowing that I could pick up any episode at any given time and be able to you know jump into it like like a book with folded pages. Oh, that's really generous of you, man. Thank you. That's kind. Um, yeah, with the, well, with the first one, um, yeah, all that structural stuff is completely in the script where it is in the show for the most part. I think I, you know, made a a couple switches, uh, in editing, but, uh, that was always part of the first season was the, the story was as much how the story was told as it was the people it was about for me. Then the second season was a sort of um, kind of anarchic refusal to do anything or, or move along any lines uh, from the first one. Um, and then the third one, I thought again, the, like the first season, the structure and the time movement were outgrowths of the story and the story was an outgrowth of the character. So organically it made sense that way. And then it became, I mean, the, the idea of doing it and, and putting this together as a story on paper, like it, it became very attractive. Like, I mean, beyond the character of Wayne and Amelia and Roland, who I, I just really wanted to follow. And, uh, it, there was a part of it that was like, uh, a really complicated math problem. Like, like, like yes. how, how are these things going to be arranged and arranged in a way that you're not cheating? Like, you're not just refusing to move the camera three feet and we would have mm-hmm. seen the killer or this didn't happen. This was a dream or, you know, I mean, I can't tell you how much I hate stuff like that. I haven't, I, I haven't, there's very few twists I've ever witnessed that didn't cheapen character and cheapen the narrative that had come before. And the twists that don't seem more like developments actually than twists. They're just, uh, kind of mind-blowing development. But, you know, I didn't want to do anything like that. I wanted to actually say, look, I have nothing up my sleeve. If you're paying attention, the show is actually telling you what's going to happen in season mm-hmm. three the whole time. 
And so I, that challenge and the characters, I, it felt like an extension of some of the things that were in season one, but they were extensions in service of character. And, uh, I, I thought even from a character point of view, uh, it, it was an evolution for what the series had done. So. So you either have an insane whiteboard somewhere that looks like a conspiracy theory, uh, grassy knoll thing, or your brain—it's all up in your brain. Which one is it? <laughs> um, about half of it stays in my brain, and then when I when I have to start communicating it to other people, that's when it has to go on the walls. Mm -hmm. um, like the first season, I covered the walls of—I mean, it looked like cold shit. I. I uh, <laughs> They covered the walls and oh, yeah. posted it's, literally it's storage and, space. and like <laughs> post-its with like tiny script. If the the wrong law enforcement individual had walked into that garage, uh, <laughs> I, I would have been detained. Um, and yeah, so at some point I got to start boarding it out. But but for a long time it just sort of stays amorphous in my head. And I think it's like, you know, watching T-Bone make music and, and seeing you record it. Like there's a stage where the structure is almost musical to me. And I just assume keep it all in my head till, till it starts to concretize. And mm -hmm. then I feel like, okay, this just to cover all the bases. Let's make sure the destination we're headed is the right one. I mean, question for you. Go for it. Uh, real fast. Just as a writer, I mean, I've been around writers, you know, in film school and beyond my whole life, and everyone has a different process. I'm wondering what you, I mean, do you have a certain time of day you like to write? Is there anything that triggers you to write? Are you more of an idea guy, or do you just sort of, like when you were writing short stories, is that different than writing screenplays? Like, is it just different inspiration, or how do you, how do you operate like that if there is a method? Um, you know, I don't know that I have a process that i mean i mean at least one that's easily communicable because i don't try to communicate it when when people uh have sort of asked me um for about my process it's usually been in the context of aspiring writers wanting to know a process and then i would just try to you know offer them some helpful stuff because hmm. i can tell you from the beginning, I, I did anything I could to not write. I, I would avoid it as long as I could. Um, I, I, I just, some, some people I hear like love the blank page and, and that's exciting for them. And, uh, whatever the opposite of that is, is, is what it is for me. And so, uh, you know, I, I'll just do whatever I can to not write. And <clears throat> then at some point, um, you know, avoiding writing, my head sort of filled up with, with the stuff I should have been writing and it's been worked over and needed and changed and, and mutated. And, you know, usually by then I also want to feel like uh, a grown man who works for a living. <laughs> so I'll, I'll be like, all right, man, sit, sit down in front of the computer and, what I've come to find, I really enjoy once, once I've got something well started and I can, I know what this is because I, I have to start something before I know what it is. Um, which that's, that's the thing with the show I'm working on now is, uh, I, 
I felt bad because I couldn't tell the bosses what it was. And I could have come up with like an intelligent sounding mm-hmm. spiel that, that might have put them at ease, but I just didn't want to lie, you know? Um, <laughs> I just thought I'm too old for it at this point. Like, I'm, I'm the, like, I'm the opposite of you. I'm like <laughs> selling things like they're going out of style yeah. and they're like, right. What's it? Yeah, we'll get it later. We'll figure it out. <laughs> you, you don't seem like a log line guy. <laughs> no, that was, that was the thing about this show is it was the first thing I'd sold that, that I hadn't written. And yeah. I was, I'm a, I'm a good salesman, but like, I have to believe in what I'm selling. And I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know really what I'm selling and, and, and until it started to come to life at least a little bit. But what I found I liked as far as process is once something has started and, and, and I feel like I, I, I get the tone, I get the, the feel of, of what this story is. Uh, I found I really like speaking out loud and uh, having an assistant mm-hmm. dictate it, you know, just take the dictation mm-hmm. and it goes up on the big flat screen there. Mm-hmm. Because I think one of the things I was always trying to avoid in writing was the the long periods of enforced isolation mm-hmm. that, you know, I mean, I, I just think it leads to a lot of the the more difficult re-entry problems artists have a lot of the time. And, uh, and I picked this up from, uh, you know, working with Milch for a few weeks yeah. on a Deadwood movie is, you know, I was like, wow, this is like, this is great. You know, and um, it's social. It makes it feel like you have an audience, right? I read about his yeah. process and I, yeah. I, I, I think that's fascinating. I like yeah. I like it. My assistant, you know, like we, we had a good day last week or uh, it was something and she was really excited when she left. She was like, I'm going to, like this is this will be one of those days I remember, and uh, you know I thought that was really sweet. And I said, um, "That's funny because I I don't remember any days of my writing life, and I don't want to, mm-hmm. but but I do remember the the times I pleased you, where I could see on your face as you were typing that this was dope, yeah. and like I felt good in that audience. Yeah, the audience is nice, and it also holds me accountable for the time because I mean." If I just go sit in front of the computer at eight thirty in the morning, I look. I, I mean, who knows what I'm going to do before noon? And yeah. maybe <laughs> nothing. But if somebody if somebody else shows up, you feel the need to to go. And then what I found, then what I found is if I showed up, like the the words came. I mean, the dialogue flowed. I tend to be super fast when I do that. I mean, when, when I was doing season three, after the first two episodes. I did all the rest mostly out loud, except for the yeah. last one. And, uh, and I, it, I, I went fast, like it was fast. And then I, I would generally then like when we had like 60 something or 70 pages of mostly just dialogue for an episode, then I would take it and go sort of turn it into a 55 page cinematic. You're reading script. and editing. Yeah, and point. now, now, and yeah, now that's the part of writing I do like is when yeah. there's not a blank page, you you have the block of marble. All you got to do is sculpt it. Now that that I like, and and I like editing, you know, film for that yeah. reason. It's uh, it's the last bit of writing, sort of. It's so funny because at um, you know, 
you know, at Jingle Punks, the most productive I ever was was when I had my audience around me and it was semi-competitive. Mm-hmm. I would hum things into my phone. And at some point it's like, look, I know how to play the piano, guitar, whatever. But like, it's like typing at some point it's antiquated. The input methods yeah. are antiquated. You have to work. And, and it, what you were describing about it getting easier is this theory of flow that certain yeah. people like, you know, some oil tycoons work best at a nightclub at four in the morning signing, you know, documents that go off, you know, some, you know, Hemingway wakes up at 4 a.m. then gets hammered the rest of the day and works for t- that idea yeah. of flow is something that you can't teach because when you're like, oh, this is the way you compose music. Oh, this is the way you write. That's too restrictive. But when I read the Milch article, because I, I I heard you and Levitan talking about it one night at a dinner, and I was like, what the, what's this process? Yeah. And I've been borrowing that even for just like any of the development stuff. I am too, my head gets tired looking at a screen. I'll, when I'm ready, whether it's I'm watching a movie or walking around, I'll take my audio thing, I'll throw it into a, a you know, a transcription. And then shaping is just the coolest part yeah. of it. Yeah. So a, a few more questions because we got to go soon. But you've worked with, you know, a, as a, you know, not only a writer, but now a director, you've worked with some of the most, you know, serious actors of the past few years, McConaughey, uh, Harrelson, Mahershala, um, Farrell. Is there anyone from that the list of, uh, you know, actors, you know, and it seems like you've worked with a lot of in quotes, men, like really serious, but also really serious well, female actors, you know, yeah. in all seasons. But I mean, is there any actors that are on the list that would have made it into a, a, a new season if there would be one of True Detective or actors? Oh, dying man, to work yeah. With? Well, of course, there's always actors I want to work with. You know, there's a lot of talented people out there. And and I've been lucky that, you know, every season I, I, I had a really good, tight working relationship with the actors because because I really respect what they do. And I think we tend to approach characters the same way. Um, you know, the guys I would really like to get my hands on and, and, and it would be the ideal sort of actors for me. And, and I do write a lot of men and, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's, um, a lot of the tenor of my imagination so far, but, uh, it, you know, like the guy I really want, he's not dead, but he's retired mm-hmm. would be Gene Hackman, circa yeah. 79. Yeah, like I'd really like Gene Hackman. I'd really like Richard Pryor. I'd really yep. like. I'd really love Warren Oates. Um, mm-hmm. Yep. You know, and then for whatever reason, it just you know kind of starts to thin out. Just because I, I'm, I'm just always willing to look at any actor, and I like I like discovering actors, and I like I like thinking of people that. Um, you know, you, you just haven't thought about in a while, like, like for Roland for season three, we, we went through so many guys who auditioned for that. And, and it was, you just needed a real specific energy because Mahershala had such gravity in the role. Yeah. That's going to, going to command such uh, a kind of somber, sober presence. You, you needed someone who could be both masculine and boyish without being infantilized and we just couldn't figure anything out. And I just said, uh, Oh, Hey, where's Steven Dork? You yeah. know? And, uh, and he came in and his audition took 10 minutes and, uh, we said, thanks. And he's like, well, you know, you want me to do it a different way or something? I was like, no, we're good. And, and he thought he'd blown it. Um, but, but he was he amazing. Just, he, just, and it was- he just, he just got it right there. <clears throat> yeah. And it seems like, uh, 
Yeah, it, 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 again, with that character, I can't see anybody really else in it. I know that we've played that, you know, when I've had played drinking games and been at the bar and being like, who could I see in, in any of these other roles? Once you've sort of definitively put them in there, you said uh, at one point, was is Robert Danny Jr., was he like an EP on the show as well? Or no, involved? no, no. Robert and I, for a little while, were maybe going to do Perry Mason together for HBO. Uh, that would have been and. Nice. And then eventually I, I, I stepped off it because um, I, I had this idea for True Detective and, and sort of I, I, I just wrote um, two scripts uh, in fall of 2016, winter, I don't know. Um, and, and then like I, I showed them to Susan Roberts' wife and producing partner. I was like, man, I think, kind of think I should go do this. And, you know, I thought I had a... I, I thought the Perry Mason script I was working on was okay, but I was not, you know, uh, splitting the atom or anything with it. Mm -hmm. It, it, uh, I, you know, I, there's a I little bit that, of, that, yeah, you know, they just might find somebody who was inspired and, and I was inspired to work with Robert and I still am, but I, you know, I was just like, this guy is not interesting to me. <laughs> the, yeah. the person, uh, portrayed in, in uh, character. Anyway. Well, last thing before I throw it to Zach to wrap it up, which is that it's been really cool. Like I would say, I've been like lucky enough to be a passenger in my own career, the same way that you said you were excited about working with T-Bone, you know, seeing the music unfold. Like even when I was doing the podcast last year, you know, being able to bounce ideas off you and, you know, I don't know uh, if anyone out there listening knows, but uh, Nick helped me come up with a story for the back two episodes of Bear and a Banjo, which just got nominated for a Webby. So uh, you can throw that on the resume there. <laughs> Not that you need it, but it was really cool to see the, the math mind. You called me at a moment where like we had like 20 minutes to talk. And as soon as you started talking, I was like, shit, I better write this down and record this because you blocked out the action in a way that, again, unless someone's done the exercise of, of like explaining what's an episode, like, I mean, it's, it's like you had it written in your mind. It's like, well, they start here, they go there, then this happens. And I was like, shit, that's the, from here on in, that's the only way I'll ever be able to explain to people how to write an episode of a podcast or a concept. You have to actually have the A, B, C, and D. And it wasn't even a formulaic conversation. It was just the same way that like I bounced, you know, comedy ideas off Levitan or David Spade, their minds just think about it a certain way. And I think that the one lesson I've learned along the way is that I've been able to borrow attributes from all these great creators around me to make my own mishmash soup of how I'm going to be a creator. Yeah, man, I think you're absolutely right. Like, you know, I mean, that's sort of the thing that, that, that when people ask you how to do this or how to do that, I, I, I think the honest answer is, um, it, it's really too complicated to put into words. And if I could, it would not help you because you are going to have to figure out your way, you know, sort of like people have to figure out their spirituality or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like most of them have the exact same goals. You're just going to have to find your personal methodology and, you know, getting to my process. I, I'm so aware, like about, is there a certain time you write? Is there this? Is there, I'm so wary of attaching, creating to any kind of superstition. I just try to report regularly. And, you know, it, it, I, I've been writing on my phone a lot lately because I'm yeah. just like, 
If I have an idea, like put it down. It's going to make tomorrow's day so much easier to start with this instead of walking in like. Okay. And I used to see John Singleton, who was a buddy of mine. Uh, oh, cool, he, man. He, he used to, mid-conversation, stop at a bar and step away and talk to his phone or open up his yellow pad. I was like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm working on Snowfall. He's like, I just got a snippet of dialogue. I have to mail it to myself or I won't remember it. Like, yeah, I love like, stuff like that. That's what you learn. After, after, like, for me, like, you know, 15 years, I was like, wait, why do I think I'll remember anything? I never do. <laughs> The most thing, the most I remember is that I I know I had something. And, well, this uh, is yeah, it's awesome, man. And this was a uh, you know an amazing conversation, Zach. What do you think, uh, occupational well, therapist here? First of all, was I in one of those episodes that Nick wrote of Baron of Banjo as an actor? Because if yes, so, that you means were. I've technically worked with Nick. Yes, <laughs> throw it on your on your whatever the web oh version God. of IMDb is. I don't know who I played. <laughs> I'm glad we finally got to meet Zach. <laughs> yeah, and we finally worked together. You know, I know you've heard yeah. my work. Uh, no, I see. knew you were going to kill it. <laughs> yeah, thanks, man. Thanks. Um, <laughs> writing, I think, you know, Jared, yeah. Jared is a guy who sends me amazing ideas every day. We bounce back to within each other. We've worked on scripted podcasts now together this last three months. And uh, I absolutely think he has a writer's mind. I think if mm. you wanted to, if you could, you know, sit, you know, if you can get your ideas down and, you know, I've seen you write. I think you can do it. I think you have great ideas. And I absolutely think you could be a TV writer or a film, even a novelist or a short story writer if you wanted to. Well, if, well, if you can focus on other things. Yeah, what I would tell you is you, you could. I, I don't know if you want to be a novelist or a short story writer, but I guarantee you, you could be a television writer. I you, thank both, you. Both I, of you, both of you. To be television writer. <laughs> thank you, thank you. That's a Zach. I, Zach, I don't know if if you, yeah. you're even literate, but you could be a television. <laughs> right. We've seen really the guys right. in the in the in the Tommy Bahama shirts. Not, and the, not necessary. And the not necessary, boys. <laughs> no, no reading required. <laughs> well, this was. This was, uh, you know, I call this my COVID masterclass because I'm sitting with some of the <laughs> greatest, you know, uh, you know, minds across all different industries. And I really appreciate you coming on. I hope you're course, safe. Bro. I hope everyone's well. And uh, I will let yeah, you get do. back to uh, whatever you're working on there. What can we expect next from you? Anything you can talk about or no? Well, um, hopefully it is uh, the show for FX on Hulu um, mm-hmm. that, that I've been working on. Um, you know, I... I don't know if I can say much about it because I keep changing it and they have to still want it. And McConaughey has to still want to do it, but uh, I'm really excited about it. And, and uh, if, when I can talk about it more, I'll, I'll definitely tell you all about it. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'll let you get back to your day and I'll speak soon. Yeah. Thanks buddy. Talk Cheers brother. All right, man. Bye. Take care. Thanks Zach.